Good morning. The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. If you are using the Bible provided for you, you can find the passage on page 811. Okay, yeah, sure. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Thanks, Volta. Let me encourage you to have a copy of the Scriptures. Turn to that text in Matthew chapter 6. Like Volta said, if it's uh, using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, it's page 811. This is a passage that's commonly known. The Lord's Prayer, uh, people call it that, and um, uh, maybe some of you have a different translation, and there's a doxology at the end, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, amen. Um, Not all uh, manuscripts have that uh, doxology added, and so some translations include it, some don't. Um, This is a very famous text, in fact, uh, often... Um, I quote it at a graveside when I'm doing a committal service, and I invite people to quote it along with me. And there's always a little bit of a, a moment there when I'm quoting it, and, and I'll say like, you know, something like, um, you know, forgive us our death, trespasses, sins, you know, because it depends on how people have, you know. And so I always like kind of drop down and listen to what they're all saying, and then I, 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 I you know, a little you know, pull the curtain back, a trick of the trade there. But, um, you know, this Lord's Supper is a beautiful, beautiful gift to the church. Um, And uh, even those who haven't attended church in a long time often know of this. And so, as I told you, when I'm quoting this at a funeral, they'll often say it along with me. Church Father Tertullian, he called the Lord's Prayer the epitome of the whole gospel. And then third century bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, called it a compendium of heavenly doctrine. So the early church, they also, this would be an, a text, uh, they, when someone was baptized, they would ask this person to pray this as their first prayer after the baptism, after a believer's baptism. And so it, it is, you know, historically, this, this has been a very rich text of Scripture that many Christians have looked to. There's a professor of Middle Eastern New Testament studies. His name's Kenneth Bailey. He was once teaching in the former Soviet Union, and he asked a young woman how she came to know Christ. 
even though she was indoctrinated with atheism from, a little, from the time she was a little girl. So I'm picking up the narrative. He says this. He said, I asked her, was there a church in your village? And she said, no, the communists closed all of them. He said, well, did some saintly grandmother instruct you in the ways of God? No, all the members of my family were atheists. Did you have secret home Bible studies or was there an underground church in your, in your area? No, none of that, she replied. So what happened then, Bailey asked, Dr. Bailey asked this woman. She said this, she says, at funerals we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. As a little girl, I heard those strange words and had no idea what, who we were talking to or what the words meant, where they came from or why we were reciting them. And so when freedom finally came, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. You see, when you're in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very, very bright. For me, the Lord's Prayer was that point of light. By the time I found its meaning, I was a Christian. And so there's a rich history here of God using this section of Scripture to be instructive. And it shouldn't take, take us by surprise at all because this is what Jesus gave it to us for, right? He gave it to us for our good. So what I hope to communicate this morning is that this text here, this prayer, is a beautiful gift to us. And we would do well to receive that gift and to use it appropriately. In the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see a few things about what Jesus does here. Um, I'll give you kind of the outline first. He, he's going to point out dangerous pitfalls to avoid. He's then going to prescribe some healthy patterns for us to follow. And then he's going to promote in this prayer a theological truth that we must celebrate. And that last point is going to be more of an excursus at the end. Our, most of our time is probably going to be spent in that second point there. So that's kind of the outline where we're going today when we look at this idea of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to pause and ask God's blessing and uh, then we'll dive into it. Father, uh, we dare not open your word. We dare not read your word or study your word. We dare not even try to especially talk about your word without asking for your spirit to guide us. Holy Spirit, that is one of your roles, and we're so thankful for it. Jesus, when you were ready to depart, you said that you were going to send the spirit of God, and that you would guide us into all truth, that he would bring to remembrance. And so right now, this is what we're asking for. We're asking that all the distractions would be put aside for a few minutes and that we would be able to, to listen intently about what your word has to say. And, I, and as I have the, the incredible privilege of, of speaking from this text, God, I, I pray that I would do so led by your spirit and that I would say things that are, are true and accurate to the scriptures and that represent well what you have for us here. I pray that each of us would, would consider how that this, this prayer that you've given to us, Jesus, is, is, should be helpful to us. And I pray that we would think through that clearly and seriously and that we would be sensitive to your Spirit's leading. And we ask these things because you're going to receive great glory if those things are accomplished. We need to hear from you. We need to learn. And I need your enablement in order to teach in a way that would be helpful and incorrect. So... We pause now, leaning on you, asking you to guide us. And God, I pray that you would uh, rule this hour as you do. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. 
All right, let's look first of all at these pitfalls here. Jesus, what he's going to do in this prayer, uh, as he's leading up to the prayer, actually, in verses 5 through 7, uh, 5 through 8, he's going to talk about uh, some pitfalls that we should avoid. You probably noticed those as Volta read the text for us. Is, is he says this, is when you pray, you must not. And he says this a couple of different times. What are some of these pitfalls to avoid? I see two in the text. Hopefully you see them as well. First of all, is that praying with the wrong motives. We see this in verses 5 and 6. He says, you know, you don't be like those hypocrites. And, and by way of just a quick word, a hypocrite is not someone who wants to do something but fails at it. Okay, a lot of times we think of, you know, Christians or or, or people are accused of being a hypocrite because they want to live a, a certain way and then they fail to do so. That's not necessarily being a hypocritical. That's being a sinner that needs forgiveness, okay? A hypocrite is someone who pretends to live a certain way, pretends to have certain heart desires, and has no true desire for those things or really doesn't want to live those way in that way at all. That's what a hypocrite is. So it's, it's someone who is um, who who puts out a front that they want to follow God, for instance, but in their heart, they have no desire at all to follow God. They're just going through the motions or whatever. Uh, this is what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about people who, who, who lapse. He's not talking about people who sin and then confess that sin. He's talking about people who really don't even care or people who just don't have that heart desire to uh, pray in a way that, that is pleasing to God. And so he says this, these hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen of others. And so in their mind, it's not even so much about praying to God. It's not even so much about a conversation with God. It's all about what are people thinking of me? What are people thinking of me when I'm praying here? Now, this can go a couple ways. I mean, this can go in the way of that you, you're, you're so preoccupied with what people think that you want them to be impressed. That could be one pitfall. But another pitfall here is that we could be so preoccupied with thinking about what people are thinking of us during our prayers is that we're thinking that they're thinking negative thoughts about us. Thinking, oh, they don't know grammar well, or, you know, they, they, they just said something incorrect, or boy, they repeated themselves, or whatever. That could be another pitfall. So here in this one, in this area here, what Jesus is telling us to avoid, He's telling us that we should be people who, that when we're praying, we're praying to God. We're not praying for the approval of other people. Now, this is not a prohibition against public prayers. I mean, we've just done several public prayers here in the service here. That's actually prescribed to us. So this is not a prohibition against public prayers. What it is a prohibition against is performance prayers. And here's the thing is prayer is not prayer unless it's addressed to God. Okay? So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you pray, don't do it for performance. Don't do it thinking of how you're going to impress people or we're so conscious about what people are going to think of you. God hears the prayers uttered behind closed doors just as well as he does the, those who are uttered standing on the stage behind a microphone. And so he says, go into the closet and pray. And again, it's not a prohibition against public prayers, but he's saying you don't need to be heard by so many people. I'm not going to be impressed by this. They're not going to be impressed by this. Just talk to me. Do you remember when we talked about what prayer was last week? Remember how we defined it? It was a conversation with a loving father. This is what he's getting at here. He's saying, have that in mind. So first of all, praying with the wrong motives. He says, why are you praying? So here's the question that we need to ask is, why do we pray? Why do we pray in front of other people? It's good to do that, but what's the motivation behind it? 
We have to be very suspicious of that. Not that we, we, we think that uh, we can't do anything right. That's not my point. But my point is we have to think through those things and say, okay, wait, well, why am I doing this? And God, if there's pride in this, please forgive me for this. Something to think about. So Jesus points out this dangerous pitfall. The first one is praying with the wrong motives. The second one is praying with the wrong method. The wrong method. You say, well, is there a wrong method of prayer? I mean, God is God, and He's a personal God, as you said. Is there a wrong way? It seems impersonal. It seems kind of impersonal. Like if, if, uh, if, if, if you came up to me and started talking to me after the service, and I said, listen, you're not talking to me the right way. All right? There's a, there's a way you need to talk to me. You would think, okay, I have zero desire to talk to this guy now. And, you know, this is, what do you, who do you think you are? I don't mean it this way. What I'm talking about when it says it's the wrong way is that um, they think that some people would think that just by virtue of saying words over and over again, getting through the prayers, saying the prayers, God is pleased with this. Um, it's like a mechanical repetition with the thought that more is better. As you know, uh, I've been to India a few different times on teaching trips. Uh, Wayne's gone with me a couple times, and um, this was from my first trip, so Wayne was not there. But um, this is a Sikh temple that I visited while I was there. And so I went into the temple, and uh, you have to walk through, you have to take your shoes and socks off, and you have to walk through this little, it's like a, it's like a really long basin of water. Water's only about this deep, you know, about an inch or so, and then you just walk through it, kind of cleanses you and you got to wear a head covering while you're the entire time that you're in the in the temple and then uh, you can walk around and they have this big room here um and 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 i remember just really two things there's there's two main memories that i have from visiting this this sikh temple the first one is me slipping and falling on the marble floor and all of my students treating me like i was a 90 year old um, I remember that, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? You know, um, you know you're old when people stop laughing when you fall, I've heard. Um, so uh, I guess I'm old. But uh, so I remember that. But more importantly, I remember this room here, okay, if I can get this to move. This room right here. Um, this is the room where people would gather in and they would sit. You can see one person way up in the left there sitting, and I would imagine at different times it would be more full than when we were there. Um, but right up in the front there, um, kind of in front of those people, and, and they didn't really want us taking a lot of pictures, so I kind of stealthily took this, and I didn't want to be taking tons of pictures. But um, uh, right up in the front, there's a man sitting there. He's the, the temple priest, and he's sitting there, and he's got a microphone in front of him. And um, he's just sitting there, and he's saying prayers over and over and over and over again, just over and over and over and over again. He's saying the same thing. I didn't, obviously, he wasn't speaking English, so I didn't know what he was saying. But he was not the least bit interested in all of what he was saying. You say, well, Jeremy, be careful. You can't judge motives and hearts. How do you know this? I know this because when I walked up to him and looked at him, he's smiling at me, waving, and he's saying the same thing over and over. Hey, yeah, yeah, you know, and just having like this kind of conversation with me, but without speaking, you know, because he's saying the same things over and over again. Now, the reason why it doesn't matter, because in his understanding of God, is that it doesn't really matter that you're not talking to a personal God. You're just trying to get the God's attention by saying the same things over and over again. And the more prayers you say, the better chances of them listening to you are. 
And, and this is the type of thing that Jesus was saying, that this is not prayer. This is not it. And, he, you know, some of you think, okay, well, you know, that, that's, yeah, that's, you know, those Sikh people, they shouldn't do that, right? You know, man, that's, that's not good. I'm glad we don't do that. Really? Recognize this book here that we've been talking about? This is what he says here on page 15. The method, most Christians, the method of most Christians in prayer is to say the same old things about the same old things. Retro. <laughs> it's true. A lot of times if we, we catch ourselves just saying the same thing about the same things all the time, think about how personal our prayers really are. Now, some of you, I mean, they're very personal. This is not a, a universal statement that we're all doing this wrong. The point, though, is that we should be very considerate and very conscious of, are we praying to God in a thoughtful way? Or are we just kind of repeating things and saying things? Now, let me just give you some. So someone says, uh, and, and I catch this in my own life too, okay? So I tell you, I preach sermons I need to hear, okay? So, you know, I'll say, and Lord, you know, be with Mia, be with Isaiah, and stuff like this. It, is, it dawned on me one time, what do I mean by this? What am I asking God to do? What, what, what am I asking God to be? I mean, he's omnipresent, so we know he's there. But what do I mean by that? You say, well, well, Jeremy, here's what you mean by this. Well, thank you for telling me. Here's what you mean by this. Is you mean that you want God to be present in your life and be in, in influence your life. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, I do. I do mean that. But there's other ways of things that, that I could mean by that as well, right? So my point isn't say, oh, don't say that. Don't say, if I hear you pray, God be with, I'm going to be like, mm, you know, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. But the point is, let's be thinking about what we mean by what we say. It's easy to fall into this. This really became, I remember several years ago, this was, I think I was a youth pastor at the time, so I can just blame it on being a youth pastor. But I was a youth pastor at the time, and I remember uh, praying for a, an event, and I thank God for the food. Problem was, we weren't eating. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? I said, you're always thankful for this food you provided. They've provided for us in all the generations that we have an abundance of. That one day we are going to eat and feast again. And thank you so much for that food, that heavenly food that you've provided. And Lord made this activity, no one die. You know, okay. And so, you know, it was like, I just, in my mode, it's like, okay, I got to pray. And the first thing that came out of it, without even thinking about it, I was praying for food. And again, I'm not trying to critique everyone's prayers and get you to, to, you know, think through every nuance and every word and second guess every word. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to get us to do is consider what Jesus said here. And he says, you know, this is not a mechanical repetition. This is a thoughtful conversation with a loving father. That's what we need to have. So don't you see that, that, that this is, um, that if we see a prayer as a conversation with a loving father, it avoids this first pitfall. That we don't have to earn the attention of a loving father or seek to impress him with a wonderful prayer right? Or it, 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 furthermore, it, it, suppose we do see prayer as a conversation with a loving father. In that case, the second pitfall is avoided because we don't need to fulfill a quota of words or overpower him with persistence to get his attention. A loving father is already paying attention to his children and is dialed into their needs before they're even aware of their own needs. That's what he says here. He says, you know, your father knows what you need before you ask of him. Now, this is not me saying we shouldn't be persistent in prayer. We're told to be persistent in prayer. But it's not because we're trying to overwhelm God or to get his attention. It's a matter of just having a loving conversation with the Father. So that's the, what we really need to settle on. 
is what is prayer? The pitfalls to avoid is this, this idea of, of that we're, we're having a mechanical prayer or we're impressing people. If we see prayer as a conversational loving Father, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna avoid those. What's the second thing that Jesus is trying to accomplish with this prayer? I think he's prescribing a healthy pattern to follow here. He's prescribing a healthy pattern to follow. And, and we can spend a lot of time looking at each one of these um, uh, each one of these commands, and there's several imperatives here. There's six imperatives that we see, uh, uh, actually seven. Uh, it, the first one in verse 9 is pray like this. But then in the actual prayer, the quotation, there's six petitions, six requests, six commands that are given in the uh, imperative force here. Um, and so I would just say this, so that, you know, quoting the Lord's Prayer is a good idea, okay? And so I think we should do it more often. But just keep in mind that what Jesus is doing here, he's given us a pattern to follow. He's, he's given us categories to think about. He's not giving us a mantra to repeat. Although I think quoting Lord's Prayer is helpful and good. Um, but it just it has to be more than just a mantra to repeat. Um, we're gonna, we can certainly pray for other things that are not listed in here. In fact, next week we're going to look at some of the Apostle Paul's prayers and things that he prayed for. And so what is in this is not an exhaustive list that Jesus is giving. Rather, what he's trying to do, he's trying to shape how we should pray rather than mandating a word-for-word approach to prayer. So with that in mind, let's look at these two categories. I think that when we look at this, you're going to see it's very, very obvious that there are two categories that Jesus is teaching here about what we should be praying for. The first category is about God's glory. We should be pray for God's glory. We see this in the first three petitions that are here. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then your will be done. Let's look at those real quickly here. Uh, first of all, this idea of hallowed be your name. This is the idea of holy and sanctified, consecrated, revered. Uh, this is something that it's a request here. The way it's written is that what Jesus is saying, he says, when you pray our Father in heaven, the first request that you should have is that God's name is glorified, that God is honored. And, and essentially, we should just say that this is that we should want God to be treated as God. And so we lead our prayers with that. And I think the order is important. We're going to get to why that is important in a minute here. But the order is important here that Jesus here is saying, you start with glorifying God. You start with saying that, God, you need to be treated as God. Now, there's a reason for that. Because one is that we, want, we should want to see that for the entire world. But also in our own hearts, we should say this. This should frame the beginning section of our prayers of saying, God, you are good. God, you are great. God, I'm so grateful I can trust you. And you say, but what if I'm going to prayer and I don't feel those things? Ah, then talk to God about that. Then I would say this. I would say, go to prayer and say, God, you know, Jesus, he told me to start my prayer with, hallowed be your name. That means you're holy. That means you're good. God, right now I am struggling with seeing your holiness. I'm struggling with seeing how you can be good in this situation. Would you please... Help me to revere you like I should. Jesus has told me that your name is hallowed and that I should, that's your essence of who you are. And God, I don't feel that right now. Please help me. Do you see? Don't you see that this order is important even when we're just so excited about God and even in those moments of intense doubt? This is a great way to start. And so he says, you know, you should be thinking and saying, I want God to be treated as God. So the question is, is I want everyone to wrestle with, is do we want God to be treated as God? Is this a desire of our hearts? And it's easy for us to say, yes, we want the whole world to treat God as who he should be treated. But let's back up and make this very personal, because remember, prayer is a personal conversation with a loving God. 
a loving father. Do, do I want God to be treated of God in my own life? Do I want him to call the shots of my life, of what's right and what's wrong, and what I should do and what I shouldn't do? Do I want to follow what he says, or do I want to just go along my own way? You see, a lot of times people approach prayer with trying to convince God to get on board with our own ideas. And here's the opposite. Jesus says, hallowed be your name. And we're going to get to that when he says, your will be done. But this idea of who God is. He, he then goes on and says, your kingdom come. We sang a little bit about that already here. And we should really long for Jesus to return and set all things right. Kingdom um, in the Bible, in the New Testament, is, is a tricky term in a lot of ways, actually, because it's actually used in a couple different ways, in a few different ways. And you've got to understand the context of it to try to figure out exactly what is being taught about this. But, you know, most conservative theologians would say that there is this already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. And what they mean by that is that there's part of it where it's already here, but then there's another part of it where it's just not yet established here. And we've sung about some of those things, and I think intuitively you would pick up on that. I mean, there's a sense where Jesus is king and, and he is ruling today, but there's also a sense where, you know, not all things have been set right yet and we're still waiting for his return to where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So there's a not yet component and already component to it. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus refers to the not yet part when he says, you know, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And he talks about the nations being gathered and he separates the sheep from the goats, things like that. He's talking about when that day comes, or John 18, we see uh, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting um, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus, on one hand, he says, well, my kingdom is not here. So there's a not yet component to it. But yet then Jesus also talks about that the kingdom is here. It's already. Um, Matthew chapter 20, uh, 12, verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I, Jesus, is saying, cast out demon, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he was casting out demons. So he's saying, the kingdom is here. Luke chapter 17. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So there's, a, there's an element that the kingdom is already here, but then we're still waiting for the full uh, uh, coming of the kingdom where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So when Jesus here is saying that may your kingdom come, what he's praying for is he's praying that, that it says we should be anticipating and wanting the second advent, wanting Jesus to come back and restore all things because that's when he gets his glory. That's when all things are set right. And that's when we hear the promises, we see the promises of, that we'll see eventually in Revelation chapter 21 where there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new city coming down. And behold, the Father, the one and the angel says, behold, I'm making all things new and there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more death. All that is put away when Jesus comes back and set all things right. And we should long for that. That should be something that we want. I think the older we get, and, you know, for those of you who are older than me in this room, you know, have been a, a believer a lot longer than I have, you'll probably agree that the older we get, the more we long for that. It's more appealing. And I believe that all of us should be praying to that end. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't even finish this church service and Jesus came back? Wouldn't it be great if we heard the trumpet sound and, and Jesus comes back and set all things right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? We've got to be ready for that. And if we're praying for that, as we're commanded to by Jesus, then we've got to be ready for it. 
Okay? So are you ready for Jesus to come back? And you say, well, there's a lot of things I want to accomplish in this life. I get that. But is that more important than Jesus coming back? Or you say, I want some people, and this is where I struggle too, is I want some people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ first. I get that. We've got to trust the justice of God, and we've got to trust the wisdom of God there. So the point is, is that we pray for people to believe, but part of, and we could argue, depending on your view, but we could argue that His kingdom coming is, necessitates people believing in Him. Um, so the point is, is that we should be people who are desiring for Jesus to come back and set all things right. May your will be done on earth. Again, we could spend a lot of time in each one of these, but I'm just trying to give you a taste this morning about this. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, God is glorified when we desire His will to be accomplished above all personal desires or agendas. God is glorified when we obey God's desired will revealed to us through the commands of Scripture. You know, Christians uh, should be people who are desiring to see God's will accomplished in their lives and in this world. Um, I mean, think about what that means for the relationship of a father, is that when you have a child who wants to obey their dad, what joy and what peace is there? And not just their dad, their mom too. When a child wants to, to honor their parents and, and obey their parents, I mean, it's just a, it's just a wonderful blessing um, that in, in peace in the home, right? This should be what we want. We want God's will to be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. It's already accomplished in heaven uh, but because sin does not dwell there. But here, sin makes a mess of things. And so the question is here is, are we willing to say no to temptation? Are we willing to say no to sin and follow the, the prescribed will of God that we see in the Scriptures? These are things to wrestle with as we look at this. So this first category is, is very important. This first category is we need to pray for God's glory. This is the pattern that Jesus has given to us, so pray for God's glory. There's a second category, though, as we're working our way through this text here, and that is that we pray for our good. Now, I love this part because sometimes we think that, you know, prayers just have to be only about uh, spiritual things and, and things. It's almost like um, that matter in the body doesn't, does, is, is wrong or evil. This is more of a Gnostic approach to, to understanding of, like, spiritual is good, matter is bad. And by matter, I mean anything temporal, uh, bodies are bad, and things like this. But look at what Jesus says here. He says, "'Give us this day our daily bread.'" And again, you know, um, for those of you in, um, were in the Adult Discipleship Hour in church history, we talked a little bit about allegorical interpretations in church history. This is an example of where sometimes people would look at this and say, well, here's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about spiritual nourishment, and that this is what we need is to give us our spiritual nourishment for the day. I love what one commentator said, and, and this sounds blasphemous, but it's not. He says sometimes we can be more spiritual than God. <laughs> and what he meant by it is like the plain reading of the text is that he's, he's saying, you know, we need food every day. We need you to provide for us. Now, could spiritual nourishment be included? Sure, it could be. It, it, it could be. But the point is, is that Jesus here, he's moving to the basic things that we have to have in order to survive. And he says, that's something you should pray for. Pray for your needs. Pray for God to supply those needs here. It's not selfish to pray about physical or personal needs. Now, for, for most of us here, probably all of us here, if not, you know, we 
we, we see, this is a little bit difficult for us to pray in some ways because we don't think about daily bread in some ways. We don't live in a world where we're worried about the next meal. I mean, right now we're kind of a little, you know, frustrated that eggs are, you know, costing four or five bucks a dozen or whatever they are right now. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm sure some of you saw this uh, meme going around. It says, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we threw toilet paper and eggs at houses of our enemies, you know. Uh, it was so abundant, you know. Um, you know, yeah, things are a little different here and everything, but listen, even with eggs costing five bucks a dozen or whatever it is, let me tell you, we still are not wondering where our next meal is coming from. There's always something to eat, and we're so blessed by that. So you say, okay, since we are living in that, how do we pray this prayer? So when Jesus is telling us, how do we do this? Well, number one, I think it's a good reminder that the blessings that we're living in come from God, and we should thank Him for it. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, it's like, God, you have provided for this already. Thank you for your provision. So I think there's that aspect to it. So it's a spark gratefulness, but it also should remind us that others have needs and consider our obligation to help meet those needs. And it also should remind us of, of how fragile our, life, our lives really are. One of the things that is a blessing about getting a cold, a couple of weeks ago I got a cold, and it was just kind of one of those annoying colds that just hung on. You remember, you know, you, you know those, and, and you're blowing your nose a million times, and, and it's just kind of one of those, like, uh, and the worst part is, like, that first day of the sore throat. You know what I'm talking about, right? The sore throat where it's hard to swallow and everything. And you know you'll get through it, and, and you get through it, and everything's fine. But there's a blessing tied up with getting cold. I remember, you know, several years ago I put it on Facebook, um, you know, uh, you know I, I'm thankful for my cold today. And the reason why was it just, it became, uh, uh, God used that to remind me of how fragile health really is and how we enjoy health in so much, in so many ways. So don't you see that these, these things that Jesus is walking us through, it's very personal, very personal. It's not just, okay, give me the food that I need. It's, it's, you know, God, you, you are a God who provides, and you're a God who cares, and I have an abundance, and, and I know that there's other people that don't, and so how can I help meet those needs? Very personal. It's a conversation with a personal God. And so this gives us this day our daily bread. So even if you have your, your meals planned out or you're not even thinking about it, this part, this praying for our good should spark gratefulness and in a way that we can help meet other people's needs. After the daily bread there, he talks about and forgive us our debts, okay? Um, we should confess our sins. Uh, this is something that should be part of our prayer. Now, let me raise a theological question, though, for you. I want you to ponder this for a second. So, uh, Revel excuse me, Romans chapter 8 uh, says, uh, Therefore, since uh, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the theological conundrum I want you to think about here for a second. So... We're told that we don't have to worry about any type of judgment if we're a believer in Christ, okay? It's been taken care of. When Jesus went to the cross, he took care of the penalty of our sins, and so we don't have to worry about it. And so this is why Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, you don't have to worry about judgment. No condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, okay? Great theological truth. Here's a conundrum. Why do we confess sins if our sins are already taken care of? Why did Jesus say, even when you pray, pray this way? Ever wonder that? 
Do we really need to ask God to forgive us of our sins if they've already been taken care of on the cross? Why do we have to do this? Thankfully, I've thought about this, okay? So, all right, all right. So, and I'm not the only one, right? Okay, so here's, here's why, here's why. I'm going to give you an answer, okay? I'm not going to just leave it there. Here's an answer. is because um, we, what Jesus is encouraging us to do is not to relate to God as a judge, but as a father, okay? And so this whole idea of condemnation is what would be for a, a judge. If we think of God in terms of only a judge, we're either innocent or guilty. Uh, we don't think in terms of either pleasing or displeasing a judge. Now, we may want to get on the good side of a judge, and so in that sense, you know, we want to please the judge. But honestly, at the end of the day, we don't care if the judge likes us or not. We just want to get away with whatever we're doing. And so if him liking us or her liking us is a means to that, then fine, okay? So I think I told you the story a long time ago. I was first got my driver's license, and I got one, two, maybe three tickets. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, speeding, and uh, learn, you, you, when you start having to pay for things, you know, as a teenager, you slow down, okay? Or at least you should. So, so anyway, so I remember getting my first speeding ticket, and um, I, I, I went to the police department to, to fight it, but not so that uh, I was going to do like a no contest type thing so that I wouldn't get the points. So hopefully I would get the points off my record. I would still pay the thing, you know, and all that stuff. Anyway, so I, I, I'm standing there and the judge or the person in charge up there, they're like, okay, you know, were you speeding? Yeah. Why are you here? Well, I'm just hoping for some mercy, you know, type thing. And, you know, all of a sudden I hear this voice in the back say, your honor, I can vouch for him. He's a good kid. I turn around, look, and my friend's dad was a police officer, and he happened to be in court that day for an unrelated thing. And so I was like, this is fortuitous, right? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I used that word as a 16-year-old, but hey, it's good, it good for the story. So anyway, so the, the, the judge then was like, okay, well, all right, based on, you know, officer's word, you know, everything, you know, we'll, we'll dismiss the matter type thing. Honestly, I didn't care if the judge liked me or not. I just wanted the judge to say not guilty, right? And if that meant another person stepping up and doing great, awesome. You see, when we can say that there's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, that's talking about our relationship with God as a judge of our sin here. Well, what Jesus is getting us to understand is that, no, it's a conversation with a loving Father. And so what's happened here is that, uh, 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 is that we... Uh, confess our sins because not because we're worried about the eternal punishment of it because of what it does to the relationship i told you i thought about this well i actually read about it here kevin young in his book on the lord's prayer excellent book by the way not very long uh i encourage you to read it says this so if i sin as a christian i should not fear condemnation for there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that's romans 8 1 but i should still feel pricked in my conscience I should not despair, but I should feel guilty when I do things that deserve to be punished. I have disrupted the father-son relationship I enjoy with God. That's why I should ask for forgiveness, not to be justified all over again, but because I've made a mess of the most important relationship in my life. So don't you see that if we go back to understand what prayer is, is a conversation with loving father, of course we confess our sins. Not because we're worried about him casting us into hell, but because we've sinned against dad. And I love Dad. And Dad loves me. And I shouldn't have done that. Forgive me for that. 
forgive me for that. So it's, it's kind of like in a marriage relationship. You know, when I apologize to my wife, I'm not apologizing because I'm afraid she's going to divorce me. I'm apologizing because my sin affected the relationship that we had. That's why we confess our sins. And so he makes this little commentary here as we have forgiven our debtors. Why does he include this commentary there? Well, that goes back to chapter 5 and verse 23 and 24 when he says, listen, if you're going to a worship service and you're ready to give an offering and then you realize someone that you've got something between someone, you've got to stop that thing and you've got to take that care of first and then do this. So what Jesus is, is articulating here, he says, hey, remember I just said a chapter ago? Remember what I said about that? That plays into part here. And so when you're asking for forgiveness, make sure that it's coming from a position that you're willing to forgive other people and you're working towards that. Um, simply put, a way to put this is that forgiving people forgive. Okay? If you're someone who's not willing to for- forgive someone else, we're going to get some commentary after the prayer that I'm not going to spend time in, but there's some commentary at the end there that says that, listen, if you're not willing to forgive, you have a fundamental disagreement or, or misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. And you should really, really wonder if you're truly a Christian, if you're not willing to forgive people. And you say, but Jeremy, you don't understand what people have done. This is going to get into a whole different subject I don't have time to dive into. Um, Forgiveness does not necessarily mean there's an absence of consequences. Forgiveness also, in order for true forgiveness to take place, there does have to be repentance. And so you need to be willing to forgive, but if the person has not repented, that forgiveness isn't going to take place until they've repented. But you should still be willing to forgive. We can get into that another time if you'd like to talk to me about that some more. One more that we have here. I need to move. Lead us not into temptation here. This is the last request that we have here. Uh, there's, it's actually you know, into the idea of to deliver us from evil. He puts those together. This is the good that we're praying for, for our spiritual protection. And we know that God doesn't entice people to sin. James makes that clear. What this is, is this is a prayer of a child saying to his father, Dad, help me out here. I don't want to go down that path. I don't want to be tempted in this way. So please, can you steer me in a way that would be away from that? Can you can you Help me to see sin the way you see it. Can you, can you make it so that, that when I'm confirmed with that, I have the power to escape the temptation? Uh, that's really what's happening here. It delivers from the evil. Some translations you may have in your Bible will say the evil one. Um, could be translated either way. Evil, evil one. Arguments both sides. Either way, it's the idea of being delivered from either Satan or just the realm of the temptation that follows Satan around here. Um, it's a request of acknowledging our, our, from acknowledging our propensity to sin. Uh, I think of come thou fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Um, this is where this is coming from here. So let us make some application, and then I told you my, the third point is like more of an excursus, a short excursus at the end here. There's two categories for prayer here that Jesus is giving, God's glory and our good. I told you that the order is important, here's why. We praise God. We start with the reminder that He is our God and He is our Father. Then we move to petitions for our good. And here's the reason why I think that's important is because if we pray for our needs and our faults and our weaknesses uh, by themselves, that actually can actually produce more anxiety in many ways. But if we pray within the context of a loving Father who we've acknowledged His, His holiness, we've acknowledged His goodness, We've worshipped him. He's all good. He's all wise. He deserves all glory. Then the burdens that we discuss, those personal petitions that we bring to him, they're unloaded on him rather than just reminders of everything that we have to be anxious about. 
And so we start by saying, God, you're good, you're great. And so then when we say, here's what we need, we need the daily bread, we need the provision for this, we need this, you know, hey, I don't know where the mortgage payment's coming from, I don't know where this is, please help me with this. But if we do that, we pray that in the context of already understanding of a loving Father who's holy, righteous, good, then we're just unloading those burdens on Him. But if we start with the other way, maybe it's more prone for us to just be more anxious about it. Again, I'm not saying that it's, 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 you know, we have to do it a certain way. I'm just trying to give you a possible practical benefit to following this order. All right, so we've looked at some of the, the, uh, the, the pitfalls to avoid this morning. We've also looked at, you know, this pattern that Jesus has given. I told you that there's a theological truth to celebrate here. Where is this theological truth to celebrate Let's go back up to verse 9. I started with, hallowed be your name as the first command. But I want us to look at the very first part of the prayer. Our Father in heaven. I've alluded to this throughout the message already, but here's the theological truth to celebrate uh, in this prayer here, that Jesus' Father is your Father. Maybe I should say Jesus' Father could be your Father. Because not everyone is naturally born into God's family. We have to be converted into that by following Jesus Christ and by identifying with Him. But here's the point that is a theological truth to celebrate. When Jesus gives us the right to call His Father our Father, He's giving us a part of His priceless relationship with God. This is a situation where we're being adopted into God's family and the bio kids are cheering it on. This is where Jesus is saying, I'm glad about this. I'm glad that you get to call him Father. He says, I want you to call my Father, Father. Think about how priceless that is. That that he's saying, I want the the relationship that I have with the Father, I want you to have that. I want you to call him Father, not just me. Prayer is a conversation with this loving Father. Your loving Father. And the other benefit to this is that Jesus' Father, He transcends all earthly constraints. He says, my Father in heaven. And so He's transcending all the constraints and limitations. And by virtue of that fact, our earthly minds, with all their limitations, will sometimes not understand what a transcendent God intends or plans for us. But when we see our Father in heaven, we're reminding ourselves, okay, you're above us, you transcend us, you know more than us. This is why I can say, hallowed be your name. And you're my Father. And Jesus is celebrating that. So don't take it for granted that Jesus willingly shares his relationship with the Father. That's a huge gift from Jesus. Massive. What he invites you to call him Father. So we need to know that our Father is all good and powerful. But as I said, not everyone is a child of God. We're not universalists. The Bible doesn't teach that. We have to believe in Jesus. We have to confess our sins and forsake our sins. We have to trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross in order to be one of God's children. We have to be adopted into His family. Jesus came to settle the problem of sin that separated us from God, and, and we all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are eternally separated. But Jesus came and He lived a perfect life of obedience that we could never live so that that righteousness could be put on our account if we believe in Him. And that's the thing is, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. He says, is it that easy? Yep. 
We call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But here's the thing is it says when we confess our sins, that means to say the same thing as. And so we have to agree with God about our sin and what that does. And we have to agree with God about who Jesus Christ is. The same word confess there is also used about Jesus Christ. And so we have to believe about who Jesus is and that he is our only hope, our absolute only hope. If we believe in him, we have eternal life. What does that belief look like? Well, it means following him. It means forsaking our, our um our sin. It doesn't mean perf- perfection. We're going to still sin, but that's why we confess our sins and we can follow Jesus Christ. So the question here as we conclude is, is God your Father? He can be only through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, I want you to call my dad your dad. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. This is a short prayer. Use it as a guide. The more you do so, it'll become a beautiful outline to start and to follow. You know, start with God's glory, move to what is for your good, all the while knowing that you're talking to a loving Father. And so I would encourage you, use the Lord's Prayer as a guide for some of your prayer times this